Welcome to Had a Magical Day, the podcast about Disney parks that's like taking a vacation in the middle of your day. So hello, welcome to another exciting episode of Had a Magical Day. Uh, Once again, we have a very, very special guest with us who actually worked at uh, Disney and is going to talk to us a little bit about working there and what his experiences were like. So we'd all like to say hello to Michael. Hello, welcome. Uh, um, thank you for the welcome, I should say. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome, Michael. Thank you for joining us. We we're going to talk about what, what you did at Disney. This is kind of a rare chance. Like people always focus on the Imagineers and other aspects of the park. And you were in finance, so we'll get a little bit of it. What's it like to work at Disney and be in finance? It's one of the biggest companies in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we do that, I want to talk to you about Disney World and, you know, what was your experience with Disney World before you worked for Disney? Like, were you a Disney fan? Were you was that part of the appeal of working for Disney? hundred percent was. I had been a lifelong Disney fan. And in fact, I had been to Walt Disney World on vacation six times prior to starting to work there. And getting the chance to work at Disney was something that had always been a, a, a dream for me. And when the opportunity uh, came up, uh, I began working there in 1998. And when the opportunity to work there came up, I jumped at it. I was very excited about having the chance to, to be a part of the, of the magic. And it was a, a good run of about 20 years. Wow. That's great. Yeah. Now, a little bit more of the, like, what are your favorite parts about the park when you were, before you worked there? Well, my, my favorite park has always been Epcot. And my favorite part of Epcot has always been World Showcase. Mm-hmm. And I always loved the, the diversity of getting the, of the dining experiences and the shopping experiences and just getting to interact with the cast members that had come from around the world and talking to them a little bit about their cultures and uh, learning a little bit about them. So although I was definitely a Disney file and that I had a strong affinity for the brand itself, uh, I definitely resonated the most with Epcot and with World Showcase. So as a, when I was visiting the park as a cast member, that was probably the park that I went to 75% of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other three were probably tied for between five and 10% each. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned that we've never talked about this before on the show, Andrew, but like the, all the cast members at uh, Epcot, at least the World Pavilion, right? Most of, almost all of them who work in the different countries from that country, Yes. And, and as a matter of fact, uh, and I, so the first thing I should put out there is, as a disclaimer is uh, I left Disney near the end of 2017. So it's possible that some of the policies that I'll tell you about uh, in the interview may be different today than they were then. Mm-hmm. But what I can tell you was true for my time working there is it was a requirement that the, that the cast member working at a country was from the country. And in fact, there would be, uh, there was required turnover because Disney did not want any of the cast members there to start to become too, if you could call it Americanized. The cast members would have a, a, an assignment. And then at the end of the assignment, and I think the assignments were either two years or three years, they would be uh, returned to the home country. And then a, a new class, so to speak, of new cast members would come as well. Mm-hmm. It's almost like an exchange program, kind of. Yeah, that's exactly what it felt like. And there was definitely an interest in keeping it fresh and keeping the, the, the influx of, of new experiences coming into the, into the park. 
So, all right. So I have to ask you, when you got the job at, at Disney corporate, mm -hmm. did you get passes? Did you have family members that were excited about this or? Oh, <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. So that's, that's one of the things I can tell you about being a Disney cast member. Uh, so at the time, uh, I had uh, what's called a, a silver pass. And so it allowed uh, me and the number of dependents I had in my family to go to the park uh, pretty much as, as often as we wanted, although there would be certain times a year where there would be either restrictions or blackouts due to the peak attendance. So trying to go during Christmas was not a good idea. Trying to go during the week of spring break or, or the week of Easter, those are some of the busiest times a year and the, the silver passes would have restrictions on them. Uh, but uh, because I've got a, a blended family, I have uh, my wife and now three adult children. Uh, when I wanted to go to the park or if my wife wanted to use the silver pass, she got a, a spouse pass that is provided to uh, any of the cast members. So she could bring four people into the park or I could bring four people into the park on a given day, but we both couldn't bring four people in each. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, but I will tell you one of the things that changes, especially you've been working there for a couple of years and I didn't understand this, but I guess it's just human nature is once you started working there for a couple of years, the last place in the world you want to go with free time is to the place you work. So, <laughs> so I went from being somebody that would gladly book entire vacations around the experience to where I became, uh, I, I would go more for just half day experiences than to say, okay, we're going to go and spend the whole weekend in the parks. Hmm. All right. And this, this is a very dumb question, but I have to ask it just because like, I'm okay. so where are the corporate offices? Are they like hidden in the basement of the castle or are they like in downtown Orlando like just how does that part work well the, so Walt Disney World is a part of the parks and resorts segment and the parks and resorts segment leadership is based in Cal in California in Anaheim now the Walt Disney World uh, equivalent of a corporate office uh, it was distributed over several locations because the the campus itself is pretty big uh, my the last eight years of my career, I was working in a building known as Team Disney, and Team Disney is actually located directly across from Disney Springs, and uh, it was a, a building where a, a lot of Disney administrative or support personnel worked. So uh, there were people in in Team Disney from uh, the controllership, all the different parts of financial reporting and. Uh, internal audit and such, uh, revenue management. Uh, and so th that was one campus and also our, uh, our technology group. But there were also the equivalent of other corporate offices uh, located either in other parts of Walt Disney World or in offsite locations like Celebration. So uh, because Walt Disney World during peak employment had 70,000 people uh, working there and uh, of those, about 6,000 were full-time professionals. It was too much to fit into any one building. So depending on what type of, of role you had with the company, you would end up working out of a different location. So mm -hmm. uh, now when, I, when I started Disney, I worked at the Grand Floridian Polynesian in their finance offices, and I was physically at the property in a, in a backstage area where the 
uh, department heads responsible for running the hotels worked as well. So I was sitting right next to them. But when I worked the more, if you would call them pure corporate type jobs, those were the ones where I was typically working at either Team Disney or at the animation building, which was backstage at Hollywood Studios. Mm-hmm. All right. So let, let me ask you this. Let's, let's yeah. go back in time. Mm-hmm. And I'm a guest at Hollywood Studios mm-hmm. and I am lost. Would I see you and you could tell I was lost. Would folks kind of in your role like step in and assist or... Well, so in my role, I probably would have spent less than 10% of my time uh, on what I'll call on stage in a guest facing area where I would have had interaction. Now, during that time, if I was walking the park and I I saw a guest that uh, appeared to be looking for assistance, even though I wasn't finance, I was definitely expected not only to provide assistance, but to be knowledgeable. Uh, about uh, the operation uh, to the level uh, that of expertise that a, de- a department head would have. So there was definitely that sense of shared responsibility and ownership. So although the majority of my time, I wouldn't have had those kinds of interactions because I typically would have been in offices doing direct financial support. There's no question that if I was on stage, I was expected to do anything that an operations manager would do. So guest assistance, picking up trash, any of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And if a finance person struggled to embrace that, it was usually a sign that they were not going to be a great fit long-term for a role because you you needed to have, I always used to tell people, you needed to have the brain of a finance person and the heart of an operator to be successful in that role. And if you leaned too far either way, uh, over time, it would impede your effectiveness. That's, it's, that's very interesting. So it's kind of like, you know, we go to Disney, we see the folks that are running Space Mountain and they're supposed to be chipper and happy and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and I, if you asked me, like, would an accountant or somebody in a role like that have a similar thing? I'd be like, probably not. They're probably just, you know, working at the computer, doing whatever. Mm-hmm. But that's very interesting to me that that kind of culture, you know, is expected of all employees. Yeah. And in fact, during the busiest times a year, they were strongly encourage all support personnel to do something that was called CrossU, which is just an abbreviation for cross utilization. And they would, and so the, the labor management organization, which is a huge part of, of trying to match operational needs with cast member availability and preferences uh, would create what were called CrossU shifts. And they would post them on the cast portal and, and other sources of information. And uh, as a cast member in a professional role, you were, you were expected to sign up for at least one, if not multiple shifts. And so what you would need to know is that those shifts would be in direct, in direct operational roles. So you could be somebody who's working as a filler in a quick service location or somebody who's working uh, the floor in a merchandise location. Um, Typically the roles were ones that, didn't require a lot of uh, technical knowledge. Like you, you wouldn't cross you somebody into an attractions operations role because they would need to know too much about ride safety in order to be somebody you could put there. But um, as a, a finance person, you were expected to fill a few of those roles per year. And if you would, if you did those roles and you paid attention, you got a pretty good feel for the how the operation was running uh, it, because during the busiest time of year, that's when the stresses are the most obvious. And if things aren't clicking, that's typically when they're most likely to show. 
Mm-hmm. So, Michael, I know you you worked in different places. Like you mentioned some of the hotels. You mentioned Hollywood Studios. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's start with some of the, the hotels, for example. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that kind of go on behind the scenes of running a Disney hotel that might be different mm-hmm. from other hotels or uh, things that we just wouldn't expect, you know, that we wouldn't think about? It, it, it's a great question. And, and I could I, I spend a lot of time just talking hotel stories. Um, so one of the things that I'll, I'll, I'll have to confess about myself is my first job with Disney was uh, as finance man, uh, manager of the Grand Floridian Hotel. And I came into Disney having a lot of prior retail experience, but no hotel experience. <laughs> so I had, a, I had a, a really steep learning curve, especially because the Grand Floridian was at that point considered to be the, the flagship hotel of Walt Disney World, the, the luxury hotel, and was... And so I got to see, and I was required to learn a lot of things about the hotel business above and beyond how to run a hotel the Disney way. Mm. So for instance, one of the things that was an ongoing cultural debate, and I don't, I'll tell you, I don't think was ever completely resolved one way or the other during my, my time there, is who's the Grand Floridian's benchmark in terms of service levels? Is it the other... Uh, high-scale hotels that are on Disney property, like, for instance, the Yacht and Beach? Or is it the true luxury hotels that compete in the hotel marketplace across the country and the world, like Ritz-Carlton? Mm-hmm. If you were a Grand Floridian operator, you 100% believed the Ritz-Carlton was your competition. And so when the Ritz-Carlton did something, you would come back and you would say, well, let me tell you about what my last experience was when I stayed at a, at a Ritz or I stayed at another luxury property and you would list, it could be uh, amenities or different services that are provided and such. And then there was this this creative tension of, okay, so what can we afford and what can we not afford? And are there things that we can trade out and such? So that's your perspective if you're an operator. If you're a finance person, you are looking at Disney's Grand Floridian primarily as the premier property at Walt Disney World, but your comparison points are, pro- are, are typically other Walt Disney World properties. And those Walt Disney World properties are not worrying about a lot of things that a true luxury brand is worrying about in the global marketplace. So as the finance support for one of those, you are right in the middle of that discussion. Okay, because on the one hand, you have the operator pulling this arm saying we need to increase service levels, we need to uh, increase the amount of amenities, we need to upscale everything, because our competition is constantly trying to get better and we need to, we need to keep innovating uh, to, to keep pace. And on the other hand, you've got the finance arm saying, guys, can we can we stop for a minute? People are going to the Grand Floridian because it's the nicest hotel on Disney property and it's got the monorail and it's really close to the Magic Kingdom. They're not going there because of your custom sewing tins or your triple sheets or your high thread counts and all that. And so you would have these fascinating debates that would happen between the senior leadership of those respective uh, uh, areas of expertise. And as the finance guy, I'm supposed to like play it right down the middle Mm-hmm. So, so it was an interesting perspective, and I, I do think it requires a, a, a unique uh, willingness to be 
to constantly have your thinking changed, challenged and, and to evolve it mm-hmm. because there is no clear right or wrong answer. There's always these different perspectives and trade-offs and you have to be comfortable with that level of ambiguity because if you don't, you'll just go crazy. Right. So I have a question. All right. So now when I picture Disney and I picture kind of high corporate level stuff, mm-hmm. I picture like really intense machine and it is dictating what is happening every step every place you know you name it every ride whatever but from what i'm hearing from you it sounds kind of like there would be some leeway within each property so what might be going on at all stars could be very different than what's going on at the grand floridian and as to restaurants and all that is that fair or not fair so you've touched on one of the most challenging things about the disney culture and that is uh, different companies have used different ways of describing it, but you are expected to be a global thinker, but a local operator. And so what that, what that means from Disney's perspective is you need to think about how what you're doing in your operation potentially ripples across to impact every other part of the operation at the Walt Disney World campus. Uh, And so that inherently is going to limit some level of entrepreneurial thinking because I'm not just running my business and competing against the outside world. Every time I change a standard at one theme park or one hotel or even one food and beverage location, I may be potentially resetting the expectation uh, from a guest that goes there and then goes to another location on Disney property and says, hey, wait a minute, I was just at this other location and you offered that there and now you're not offering it here. Why are your service levels different? So one of the things that uh, I used, I used to joke about it is uh, being part of the matrix because (laughs) you had to go, you had to think horizontal and you had to think vertical and you vertically and you had to do both almost all the time. So you're trying to find that medium right in between. And just like those discussions would happen about service levels, like who's your competition? Is it the outside industry or the other Disney hotels? This was another way that that same discussion would happen, which is how do we make our our part of the operation distinct without necessarily requiring the other parts of the operation to follow suit unless it's a global initiative? This, this is interesting to me that, you know, listen to you like talk about the decisions you guys have to make, particularly when, when you think about the parks and the history, but just the history, like the, the legends that get told about like Walt and Roy, it's always Walt had the vision. Like when he wanted to make the first animated feature films, like Roy, get the money. Don't worry me about the detail. Um, I don't want to worry about the money. I just want to do what an artist does. Mm-hmm. And then when he's building the park, it was like the same thing. The, him and the Imagineers could do whatever they wanted, more or less, and Roy and other people had to figure out how to pay for it. That's changed over the years, right? I mean, the Imagineers are kind of gone up through early 70s. And then after Roy passed away, the company kind of fell on, not hard times, but the, things slowed down a little bit. And then you had Eisner coming in. Mm-hmm. He changed the culture a little bit. So why don't you tell me about that and kind of how the relationship between like Imagineers and finance have kind of seesawed back and forth over the years. So working with people in Imagineering was both some of the most satisfying and some of the most frustrating work I did. So a finance person is supposed to help an operator make the most credible and convincing business case possible 
for why a particular investment needs to be made. And I'll, I'll, uh, I, I've worked on projects as big as the California uh, Adventure Expansion in, in uh, Anaheim, as well as uh, projects like the Magic Kingdom Expansion and also with Avatar and such. So I've seen the, the way that business cases get developed. They're very complicated. You have to make a lot of very detailed assumptions working with, in some cases, things that are never completely knowable. You're making educated assumptions about things, but you are helping the creative people take their creative vision and almost translate it into a, a, um, a way where an operator ends up with, this is what we're going to build. And you're going to tell me how you want to run it. And you're going to tell me how much the staffing is going to be and such. And you are our revenue management experts. And you're going to tell us how much incremental ticket revenue we're going to get from either more people coming or from charging more or such. And you're putting all those pieces together to come up with the business case. And, and you're expected to be a credible advocate for the case, which means you ultimately have to get comfortable enough with the assumptions to be able to articulate them as if you were the person that created them. And, and so that the whole Walt and Roy tension is, well, what do you do sometimes when somebody who is a subject matter expert is giving you an assumption that you don't agree with? Okay. I, I found as a finance person, uh, diplomacy and, and, and tact and, and being fact-based in, uh, having these kinds of discussions back and forth would help move the discussion along to where eventually things like that would get worked out. Mm -hmm. But you, you are, so as a finance person, you're expected to challenge the creative people enough to where they're thinking through these things. But if a creative person ultimately comes back to you and says, I've listened to you, I've heard what you said, or an operations person says the same thing, this is how it's got to be then at that point, you've got to say, all right, I've got to work on some other part of the business case to increase value here because we need this thing and we've got to figure out how we're going to be able to afford it. So let me, can I ask like, sure. a semi-real world question, but we'll just use it as an example. Sure. Let's take Avatar and kind of building mm -hmm. that little world there. Mm -hmm. How did that start? Was it just, you know, whoever was in charge of Animal Kingdom said, hey, this, we need a new attraction here. Like, where does it kind of germinate from, I guess, is what I'm asking. Typically, multiple places in the organization at the same time. And the reason I say that is your creative people are trying to think of what compelling new content is going to be. So they're usually thinking in terms of stories and characters. Uh, your industrial engineers are, are the people that are responsible for things like uh, balancing attendance flows and identifying what the correct park hours are and the appropriate schedules and when you're going to run parades and such. So they're the ones that are saying, okay, if you want to have this level of attendance in a year, this is the amount of ride capacity you need to have in the park for these people to feel like they're getting a meaningful experience. So they're identifying, okay, so the creative people are, are saying, we want to have this attraction featuring this new content. And in this case, we'll, we'll use Avatar as the example. Now the industrial engineers are saying, okay, well, we need to, uh, to, to hit the projections in our five-year plan, provide, uh, which are typically driven by corporate uh, requirements. 
we're going to need to add this many number of new attractions with this level of ride capacity. We're going to need to expand our park hours by this much. We're going to need to increase the number of parades we run by this much and so on. So they've got their perspective. Then you've got the labor management team that's saying, okay, to staff all these things, we're going to need to increase the amount of full-time or part-time positions by this much. You've got the operators saying, okay, so to be able to run all of these different positions and staff them, I'm going to need this level, these cat number of cast members with this level of additional training uh, to be able to deliver a consistent guest experience. And it's going to cost this much to do that. And then you've got the revenue management people saying, okay, well, I can tell you that in the past, when we've added a, a, an expansion to a park, it's reasonable to expect between X and Y in terms of value. This many number of brand new people are coming. This many number of people were coming anyway, but are now going to stay longer because you've given them a reason to go to Animal Kingdom instead of going to uh, Islands of Adventure, say, in Orlando. And we'll be able to increase ticket prices by this much more above inflation because you're giving the guests something so compelling that they're willing to pay extra for it. And you're putting all those things together constantly as part of a five-year plan where you're putting the entire menu for the next five years together. But then as each individual project comes up for funding, you're going far deeper into the assumptions for that one project. So like start to finish, from kind of the conception of Avatar to like when the first person goes on it for the first time, how much time are we talking for something like that? Oh gosh. Well, if you're talking about from what's called blue sky, which is I'm just storyboarding right now. I'm throwing concepts out there. I don't have any details behind them to I've gotten capital funding approved and it's going to cost $1 billion to build this. And it's going to require cash flows of this amount and this over years. And I'm going to have a net present value of this or that. Uh, I would say, for a project that complicated, probably between 12 and 12 to 24 months. That's uh, it? Because, yeah. Now wow. that's, that's to get the, that's to get the business case developed. That's not to actually go ahead and build it. Okay. I was going to okay. say, gee, that's fast. No, 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 no. So the building of something like that is going to typically be, I, I'm going to say a, a land expansion. Your best case scenario is three years and your most realistic is four. Your worst case is probably five. So, so, Okay. So, so, when, so with something like Avatar, from my first idea to the park is open, you're probably talking about five to six years. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Now, what's it like for you? So, you know, you're not an Imagineer, but you're in there. You're helping shape the decisions that shape the ride. When this land finally comes out, like, what's that? It's going to be a pretty satisfying feeling to see this thing. Uh, come to fruition and see how popular it becomes with, with people. Oh, sure it is. And, and, and each person is going to, uh, that's part of the team is going to feel a certain level of pride in the part where they feel like they were able to have the greatest impact. Hmm. So if you are, uh, if you're an Imagineer, yes, you need to care about, uh, you know, about 20 different things, but ultimately the thing you care about the most is when the guests go through there, are, are they resonating with the experience? Do they feel like they just had this mind-blowing type experience? If you're a finance person and you've been required to put that business case together and make it as airtight as you can, and you now find that you're, that the, the ride is creatively very satisfying, but you're not making your financial projections, well, that's not going to go as well for you uh, as it would uh, for the creative person because 
ultimately your job is to be the, you know, the honest broker, the balanced scorecard, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And you will be intimately involved in figuring out if there are any gaps between what you thought you were going to be able to generate new business and what's actually coming in, you are going to be directly involved in figuring out how to close that gap as quickly as possible. Now, that doesn't mean you, as a finance person, you can't feel that same sense of, but man, this is so cool. I am so glad we did this. Just that's not the part of the conversation where you're necessarily asked to participate. So yeah. It's like, hey, we have an entire team of creative people that get to decide what's cool and what isn't. You need to make sure that we're, we've been very thoughtful on how we're going to go about funding this and providing a long-term business justification for it. Mm-hmm. Now, when something like that is being built and you're involved in you know, the financial decisions, do you have some, you, you see a lot of how it's coming along? Like when you went, when, a, when the ride opened and you first went on it, were you completely blown away or you kind of knew what it was going to be like? Uh, you, you are expected to be, now there, there's a lot of very detailed construction knowledge that's required that you can absorb over time, but realistically speaking, you're, you're not going to be uh, in a position to be able to do any kind of, of testing until you're within a six month or less window mm-hmm. of the ride opening to the guests. I, I almost feel like in a lot of ways, it's kind of like when you make a movie, you're involved in it to, this, to, to the extent of, I know what the story is, I'm part of the filming and all that, but until it releases to the public, you don't know what the reaction is going to be. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like what it's like when you open an attraction. You may have your own gut feeling about this is going to be a smash or this is going to be just so-so. But until the guests come in and, and validate it for you one way or the other, at best, that's all it is. It's just an opinion or an assumption. When you look back, like when you go to the park now, are there certain things like you can look at? Like, what's the thing like, you're proudest of that you go, hey, you know what? I was involved in that. Like that, that spa treatment at the Floridian, that didn't happen until I approved that or whatever. Or, you know, there's, a, there's an extra bathroom in the Avatar land because I, you know, I made sure we had that in there. One of, one of my favorite projects was one of my earliest and one of my smallest. One of the cast members that I work with at the Grand Floridian was a, a, a ironically enough, a chef that was very passionate about children's activities. And he approached me and said, look, I've got this idea for this really cool thing we could do with kids. And, you know, I'm not asking you for any capital right now. And I'm not asking for you to give me a, a permanent increase to my budget. I'd like to run a test of this thing for about two months. And if it's successful, then we'll then we can have discussions about doing it permanently. And I said, okay, I'll give you two months. And I said, if the test is unsuccessful, then you may need to make up part of the uh, of the shortfall of any shortfall that that occurs. Well, the thing that he ended up creating is called the Wonderland Tea Party, and it's at the Grand Floridian. And he was the he was the creative guy behind all of it. Uh, he loved working with the kids. And so they would do things like he had the Mad Hatter come in and interact with the kids. <laughs> and uh, he would do things like, okay, we're going to, you know, at, at this tea party, we start with dessert. And so he would have the kids start with icing their cupcakes and such. And my kids at time uh, at that time were still uh, pretty small. And so they got to be a part of one of the test audiences for it. 
And so I was able to get real time feedback from my own kids saying, oh, wow, this is cool. This was fun. Uh And that was one of those things where because the scale was so small, we managed to fly under the radar of hey, this is big enough for the for the larger stakeholders at Walt Disney World to be a part of. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think today that would probably be harder to do. And that was one of those cases where it eventually evolved into something that was big enough and successful enough to where the, the more experienced operators kind of tapped us on the shoulder and said, okay, we'll take it from here. <laughs> but I did, I did feel like we, we were a part of getting something off the ground that didn't exist and ended up being something pretty cool for the, for the, for the kids for sure. And also for their parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That sounds like a great event. I hadn't heard of that before. Now, is that just at the Floridian or did other Oh, it, was, hotels. Uh, it was just the Grand Floridian. Um, and, and you know, it, it's hotels, other hotels could potentially create their own offerings. But one of the things, uh, so th- this is where the think global, act lo- uh, local comes into play. So one of the objections that uh, we heard to the, to the concept when word started to get around that it was being, it was being successful and wanted to increase the number of days is, Hey guys, you need to understand the, the Walt Disney World business model is about getting people into the parks as early in the day as they can <laughs> and staying there as long as possible. So anything you do that is against that is, a, is not good for business. Hmm. And as a, hotel, as a person working in the hotel and going and walking the lobbies every day and seeing that and reading the guest ratings, I could say, guys, let me tell you a little bit about what the guests are that are going to this thing. They're tired, okay? They're there for a week and they have a four-day park pass. They're not going to the parks every day, okay? If they weren't doing this Wonderland Tea Party, they would be doing something else, okay? So I am not competing with the park business because if I was, I would agree with you 100%. But trust me, if you look at these parents, what they want is a couple of hours to themselves where they maybe they're going to go to the spa. Maybe they're going to go to the, maybe they're going to take a nap. Mm-hmm. And they know that their kids are in a supervised activity with a character where they're going to be getting to do cool stuff. And at the end, you'll be able to come in and take pictures. So it's it, so we get it, but that's we've, we've considered that and we still think that it's okay. A, a lot of parents are planning those down days into their vacation. And one of the things that we do to help the parents is to come up with fun activities for the kids that are supervised so that parents don't feel like the kids are fending for themselves, but are flexible enough to where they accommodate a parent's schedule for when they want to go to the park and when they don't. And if you're able to hit all those uh, perfectly, then you've come up with the, with the perfect balance. That's great. That's what makes it a great vacation place. So Michael, as a, as a Disney insider, we have to ask, what is your favorite all-time Disney ride? Uh, I, I'm I'm a bit of a traditionalist and a bit of a wuss, so it's going to be Haunted Mansion for me. I don't need to get thrilled. I don't need to get scared. I don't need to get whipped around quickly. Just the the the, the humor and the the history of the Haunted Mansion for me has always been one of my favorites. And when I worked at the Grand Floridian and you were outside, you could hear the werewolf from the <laughs> attraction in the Magic Kingdom yeah. uh, at the Grand Floridian. Yeah, that was always a cool thing as well. <laughs> I have a similar question. I just remembered that I was going to ask earlier. Um, so you mentioned like the silver passes that you got for being yes. a, sta- uh, a cast member. 
Um, what's kind of the coolest behind the scenes thing you got to do? Like sometimes they have parties for Disney employees. I think like you have a Christmas party or whatever. You have Mm -hmm. your private park to yourself. My first year with the company, I won an award uh, called Partners in Excellence. And it was, it was an award given to people that were considered to be representing the, the, the right balance of guest cast financial savvy. Uh, and it was, a, it was definitely my biggest honor during my time with the company. And they, had a, a, they have a ceremony um, for all the winners of the award for that year. And so that was one that was pretty cool. And then uh, sometimes the holiday parties would, would be pretty cool as well. The, 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 I think probably my favorite super cool thing to do is um, operators are always more than happy to give you backstage tours if you're in finance, because that's their opportunity to make their pitch as to why they need this new piece of equipment. And so I got to do backstage tours of uh, Tower of Terror, Rock and Roller Coaster, uh, the Indiana Jones stunt show. And you get to you get to see what the attractions are like with their lights on, and you and you have cast members a lot of times that are telling you these incredibly funny stories. Uh, just as an example, uh, with Tower of Terror, so you've got the elevator obviously going in the shaft up and down. We had a guest come off one time claiming that they were attacked by a bat <laughs> when they were in the Tower of Terror. Now we're we're pretty sure there are no bats in there, and what we figured out is the end of that day. At the bottom of the elevator shaft, somebody had a goofy baseball cap with ear flaps on it. <laughs> so, so we were pretty sure that what ended up happening is that person didn't have that cap fastened on too tightly. And what ended up happening was the flap from the goofy cap brushed against somebody's arm. It looks, it's long and it's black and it's just, it's gone like that. And we had a guest that thought it was uh, a bat. <laughs> and, and so you'll hear these stories from the, from the operators sometimes that are just hysterical. And, you know, they, 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 you definitely feel like an insider when you're getting to do those kinds of things. I think that's why the operations support finance jobs are the ones that are definitely the most sought out from people that are looking to join Disney. Because I think they're looking to get that kind of a feel like, hey, you know, I'm a part of this and and I'm close to the guests and I'm connected to all that because they can be pretty cool. All right. Well, that's terrific. Thank you for, for your time. I wanted to follow up with what you're doing now. Mm-hmm. Now, then this is how I met you. You're one of the organizers for the U.S. Memory Championships. Yeah. So when I, when I left Disney, I joined this business. My father's been running it for a little over 20 years. It's the United States Memory Championship. It's really the spelling bee for memory is the way I like to describe it. And uh, the part that I get the most excited about is taking not just memory, but learning techniques and trying to, to share them within the education community. Uh, and also, uh, I've learned so much about brain health. And uh, I, I get to use that knowledge to work with uh, groups like the Brain Fitness Academy here in Orlando. Uh, that's a, a, a service provided for people that are in the early stages of dementia. And we try to use the science as a way of, of giving people the best quality of life that they can have while struggling with some of the things that happen as the dementia progresses. So I, I, I love the science stuff and I, I love feeling like I'm making a difference in people's lives, whether it's a better education outcome, better test taking ability, deeper mastery of the subject or better brain health 
at any age. So I'm passionate about it and I'm, I'm thrilled that I'm getting the opportunity to work with my father. So I'm grateful for the time that I had at Disney and I have a, a lot of great memories and stories. Yet I'm also excited to be in this new part of my life and looking forward to what that brings as well. Okay, so I've never heard of this until just now. Okay. So this is like a spelling bee. So do you give people like a long thing, list of items they have to remember and they say it back? Is it? So this year we've got five uh, events that we're doing. We have Lumosity as a sponsor. So one event, for instance, would be, okay, we're going to give you a shuffle deck of 52 cards and you've got five minutes to memorize the entire deck in order. Go. Ah, and turn the timer on. And we have people that are passionate enough about wanting to be recognized as having elite memories where they will prepare for these things as if they're preparing for an Olympic event. The card thing that he described, like they have to memorize the cards. Yeah. They go back and forth. They ask each person and relic, like, what's the next card? What's the next card? Wow. And they have to do it. And the tension, you know, it's like the spelling bee, you know, yeah. those kids are struggling to think of the, the spelling. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's quite a, quite an event. And that's just one of the, the five right. events that, that Michael was so talking I just about. Have to ask. Can the audience see what the next card is? Yes. Oh, that's exciting. Okay. So what, yeah. So what we'll do is um, one year we did it where my father was actually holding giant sized cards up. Um, but now what we do is do a projector with PowerPoint okay. where we will have already pre-shuffled and pre-arranged the cards and have a display that the audience is able to see that gotcha. the athletes are seated with their backs to the screen. So they are unable to right. see. And uh, so memorizing cards is one thing, memorizing a poem that they're given that has, I believe it's 20 lines and it's a poem that's never been published before. So there's not any opportunity to memorize it ahead of time or memorizing 500 random digits. Now, the, the thing is some people out of oneness have gone on to compete on game shows and other things like that, or superhumans or others. We're much more interested in the advocacy element what we're trying to get people to understand is, is memories as a skill that is learnable and trainable and that these people that in, in almost every instance that now are able to demonstrate these extraordinary feats started out with what we would call an ordinary memory, but learned and practiced these techniques and applied them over time to where they were able to do these amazing things. That's great. And that's, that's ultimately what we're about because it can make a big difference in somebody's life. No, absolutely. I, I think that's really interesting. I'm going to check that out. Okay. I'm guessing it's some YouTube videos or I can see people doing incredible memory. That's neat. Yes. Very, so, yeah. the, whole, the whole competition last year was virtual. So that's all recorded yes. and probably online, right, Michael? Yes. Yeah. So and it is quite, it's, it's quite a show. I've, I've yes. seen yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so for our audience, we obviously have a lot of Disney fans listening to the podcast. It's in mm -hmm. Orlando. It's October 23rd. You can do what I'm doing, which is go down there, hit mm -hmm. Disney for a couple of days, take that Saturday off. Like you said, you're going to be tired anyways. Mm -hmm. uh, take that day off. Check out the memory championships. I'm not really one for sports, but this sounds like the competition I could get into watching because this is this sounds fascinating. We love it. And I, I do feel like I get to make a difference with people's lives when I, I work with them on this stuff. And that's very rewarding. Um, and I'm grateful that I've had the opportunity to work with my father to continue to expand the business. All right. well, that's great. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, a lot of My interesting pleasure. stuff between Disney right. and the yeah, memory championships. You. I feel like I got a little uh, MBA here this afternoon. So, <laughs> so Andrew, you want to tell, tell Michael how we wrap this up here? Yes. So we have a very special way of ending each episode and I'll put it in the chat and we'll do a little countdown. All right. So we'll see, see you real soon. soon. <laughs>
Okay. And we always screw it up. So you never get it in sync. <laughs> right. Okay. Um,